Hello everyone and welcome to this new session of MEMCAST. I'm here with Dr. Melanie Blake, one of our stroke consultants in Northampton General Hospital. And we're going to speak about intervention in hyperacute stroke. Hi, and thank you for asking me to talk to you again. I'm a stroke consultant in a district general hospital. So what I describe to you is very much describing the practice that we have here and, and maybe very different to the practice that you experience in your hospitals. But I think the fundamentals of what we're going to talk about is going to be similar everywhere. Now, I'm very much aware that stroke care has changed significantly over the last 10 to 20 years. And from when I was a junior and admitting strokes and popping them in a bed and giving them an aspirin tablet, our junior colleagues now perhaps rarely see acute stroke because it's given to the acute stroke physicians and stroke teams to look after. Very similar to coronary artery syndromes. I remember thrombolizing heart attacks when I was a junior doctor, but I don't go anywhere near them now. So the majority of you may not be used to seeing the presentation of acute stroke. And I think that's something to bear in mind when you're going on call. I'm going to start talking about thrombolysis and the management of acute ischemic stroke. and just trying to give you a framework to work around and to think about when you're called to assess these patients. What's really important to think about is, is what you need to know about that patient to make an important decision about their management or to convey the information so the senior decision maker can make the decisions. So when I'm going to see a hyperacute stroke patient that's been pre-alerted to the team down in the emergency department, I'm going down thinking about certain things. Things I'm most interested to know about is when did the stroke start and understanding a true onset time. So when was the individual witness to develop stroke symptoms? If they've woken up with the symptoms, then you have to describe the onset as when they were last seen well, which may well have been when they went to bed the night before. Now, obviously, there are some advanced imaging techniques that aren't available in the hospital I work in, but may be available in hospitals that you work in to see and get a better idea of stroke onset. And we'll talk about those in a little while. But you want to know an onset time. When was this individual last seen well? Because as I'm sure as you realise, thrombolysis is a time-dependent treatment and we like to deliver the therapy within four and a half hours of symptom onset. And that's generally what we tend to work to in our hospital. We don't use any age as a cutoff for thrombolysis. It very much depends on the functional ability of the individual and comorbidities that might influence us the other way. So age isn't a barrier, and we certainly thrombolise patients into their 90s. You want to know what medication this individual is taking, and that might be challenging because they may be aphasic and not able to talk to you. But you really do need to know if they're on anticoagulant treatment. Now, in the past, when warfarin was perhaps the only anticoagulant used, you could do a bedside INR and immediately know if you're going to be able to thrombolise. And if somebody's got an INR of 1.7, you can seriously think about thrombolysis. Other centres may use an INR of 1.4, but you make a decision and, and your senior clinicians will be making a decision based on what they feel comfortable with. Obviously, the newer anticoagulants, and we're talking about apixaban, divigatran, rivaroxaban and adoxaban, those are the ones that are available in the UK, you haven't got an, a blood test to know whether they're taking them or not. So you need to be asking direct questions of the patient, of the family, or hoping that the ambulance crew have brought the medication in with the patient. You don't want to be thrombolizing somebody who's on an anticoagulant. So you've got this information, you've got a story about the symptoms, and you've understood a bit about the functional status of the individual. You want to know how well they are. We typically use something called the modified ranking scale that you may wish to go and look at to decide the functionality of an individual. 
If you've got a modified ranking score of zero, that means you're functionally independent, self-caring and fit. And as the number goes up, your functional ability obviously diminishes. You're going to need to work quickly. We work on a door-to-needle time of trying to do it in 30 minutes, which is challenging. Thinking about the patient, what do you need to do? You need to know how much this patient weighs. And a lot of hospitals may have systems to weigh patients as they come through the door. We have a pack slide that weighs the patient as we transfer them from the ambulance trolley to our bed. You need to know a weight to decide on the amount of thrombolysis you're going to give the individual. You're going to quickly get IV access, you're going to take bloods and you're going to book your CT scan. And whilst you're doing that, you're going to be doing a quick neurological examination or part of using the NIHSS score to get an idea of stroke severity. You're then going to go around to scan and get your CT head scan and get that immediately reported. Now, it may well be that your senior stroke clinician is with you and is comfortable with reporting their own scans. And you can be making quick decisions on whether you're going to proceed to thrombolysis or not. So there are lots of reasons you need to run through in your head whilst you're thinking about why you might not thrombolyse a patient, and we'll talk about those. An absolute contraindication to thrombolysis is seeing blood on the CT head scan. CT head scans pick up blood straight away, so if you're seeing something suggestive of blood, you're not going to touch that patient with a thrombolysis agent. And we're talking here about subdurals, extradurals, intracerebral haemorrhage, and subarachnoid haemorrhage. And if anybody gives a history that seems very typical for a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you're going to think hard about whether you thrombolise them or not if you're not seeing blood on the CT. Because we all know that subarachnoid hemorrhage can present with a normal CT head scan, but with a typical history. And you may then wish to pursue other imaging techniques to help decide whether this is an ischemic stroke or not. And in that case, you might want to try and do a quick MRI scan to see if you can see evidence of ischemia that supports the diagnosis of ischemic stroke. It is challenging. Recently made a decision not to thrombolyse an individual based on the CT scan in front of me that I felt showed a very small haemorrhage. With the retrospectoscope and looking at scans with other consultant radiologists in the coming days, we've decided that wasn't a bleed, but taking a consensus of opinion of my colleagues, their feeling was that they wouldn't have thrombolised that patient either. And a lot of this is based on experience We've been there, we've thrombolised with good intention some individuals over the years who have bled. And then when you look at their scans in great detail afterwards, on a couple of occasions, we've noticed one that had a tiny convex subarachnoid and one that had a tiny speck of blood within their brain. And, and both of those bled severely. So, you know, it's a difficult decision to make sometimes, but you have to look for blood on your CT head scan. So that's an absolute contraindication. Another absolute contraindication is severe hypertension, and you're not going to deliver a thrombolytic agent to somebody whose blood pressure systolic is greater than 185 and or their diastolic is greater than 110. Now, you may wish to think about what's causing the high blood pressure. It may be that the patient is in pain, is in urinary retention, and if you give treatments to alleviate pain, nausea, urinary retention, you may find that the blood pressure falls to satisfactory levels. We've got into the practice if an individual comes in with a really high blood pressure and we do feel that they're in the thrombolysis window, perhaps giving them an early dose even before we go to scan of 10 milligrams of labetalol to see if we can bring that blood pressure down. And you may wish to try using a bit of labetalol to bring the blood pressure down. If it comes down easily and you're comfortable that you're going to be able to see that blood pressure stay below that high level during the period of thrombolysis and ongoing, then you can probably safely thrombolyse. 
I think the question is, if you give a bit of libido oil, the blood pressure comes down a bit and then springs back up again, you have to think twice about whether you're going to thrombolyze or not, because you want that blood pressure to be at a safe level during the thrombolysis and in the hours afterwards, because the individual will be at risk of hemorrhagic transformation if they're running a high blood pressure. Now, if you go through the literature, you can see an awful lot of other reasons that are absolute contraindications to thrombolysis. And I'm not going to go through the whole list now, but other things to think about are things such as infective endocarditis. If you're worried or seriously concerned about that, the risk of thrombolizing those individuals is high because you can cause hemorrhage of those septic emboli. You'll perhaps have local protocols on if you would consider thrombolysis post-surgery. So there are reasons why you wouldn't thrombolyze people if they just had big surgery for obvious reasons. So you, you need to think about that. Obviously, you're not going to thrombolize somebody if they're actively bleeding from any source. I would suggest you wouldn't if they've had a lumbar puncture in the last seven days. And as I say, significant head trauma, stroke or major surgery in the last three months or so you may well wish to think twice about thrombolysis. Similarly, a low platelet count of less than 100 is an absolute contraindication. It is possible, though, that you might start to thrombolyse somebody without blood results. And we do this routinely. We don't wait for our blood results to come through before we start treatment. So if your blood results come through during treatment and the platelet count is less than 100, you will stop giving that thrombolysis. I do make an effort to see if there are any old blood results on the system, which can be reassuring when you're making these thrombolysis decisions. We've all been through a lot of difficult decisions about thrombolizing, and, and often when you've got a difficult decision, it's difficult because it's difficult, not because you're incompetent or not, not able to do your job properly. And often when you've got difficult decisions, that's a good time to talk to colleagues and get a combined decision approach. And, and I can certainly remember instances over the years that I've done that. I think somebody presenting with PV bleeding perhaps with big fibroids known to the gynaecologist with a lot of PV bleeding, with ongoing bleeding on tranexamic acid. They're coming in with clearly an acute ischemic stroke. What do you do? Well, I called the gynaecologist at two o'clock in the morning. We made a decision to thrombolise and that was fine. I've thrombolised people with superficial head trauma, knowing that I would cause oozing of the suture on their head and perhaps knowing I was going to give them black eyes and did but also we improved their symptoms from stroke. More recently, I had a patient who had had coronary angiogram for an acute coronary syndrome about 10 days previously and developed a pseudoaneurysm over a radial artery. They'd had their anticoagulant stop because of all these events and then had an embolic ischemic stroke. They were in the hospital within the time window. Luckily, I was able to talk to a vascular surgeon just prior to assessing her for thrombolysis and he was of the opinion that that aneurysm clotted off and that he felt it was safe for us to thrombolyse. So we did thrombolyse. I actually elected to use a reduced amount of thrombolytic agent. The normal dose is 0.9 milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum dose. But I used the enchanted trial dose of 0.6 milligrams per kilogram just to try and get benefit with reducing risk. Some people might criticise that. There's never a right or a wrong, but that's what we did. The individual eventually did make a good recovery from her stroke. But one and a half hours after thrombolysis, she developed acute pain and swelling over the aneurysm. We had applied a pressure dressing during thrombolysis, so that did cause us a bit of a heart attack. But she went for a vascular scan and it wasn't actively bleeding, but she did undergo a repair of that aneurysm a few days after her thrombolysis. So you're always going to come up with difficult decisions when you're making a thrombolysis decision. 
and actually it probably isn't your decision to make. You're going to involve your senior decision maker to make the final thrombolysis decision. When it's easy, it's easy, it's straightforward. When it's not, you need to involve others to help you. Thrombolysis is delivered through a peripheral cannula. It's given 10% bolus over the first two minutes and then the rest goes in over an hour. And you're obviously monitoring the individual very closely whilst you're delivering the medication. Read their eyes down in our emergency department and transfer up to our stroke ward when the thrombolysis has finished. I guess what we need to think about is things that perhaps can go wrong during thrombolysis or cause you concern and worry during the procedure. It's not uncommon for people to feel sick and vomit when they're given alteplase, which is the thrombolytic agent that we use. Now, Obviously, vomiting can be a sign of intracerebral hemorrhage, so you need to be aware of that, but alteplase can cause vomiting. So I tend to give people some undansetron if they're vomiting. However, if they have prolonged vomiting or you're concerned by any sudden rise in blood pressure or change in neurological condition for the worse, you're going to stop the alteplase and go straight to scan to exclude an intracerebral hemorrhage. Post-thrombolysis, you're going to be monitoring the patient closely there are things you're going to try and avoid. You're going to try and avoid NG tube placement, catheterization, arterial blood gas and cannulation just because they are going to be at risk of bleeding acutely post-thrombolysis. Thrombolysis itself can cause intracerebral bleeding. It causes it directly, obviously, whilst the infusions are ongoing. And the feeling is for the first hour or so after the infusion. Thereafter, the likelihood of the actual agent causing significant bleeding is diminished, but there is always the risk, obviously, of hemorrhagic transformation of any infarct. There's probably loads more we can talk about thrombolysis. Briefly, you can sometimes get an anaphylactic reaction to alteplase. It's not common, but it is more common in those who are on ACE inhibitors. And it's quite unusual sometimes in that you can get a swelling of half the face or half the mouth and tongue and can be mistaken for you might think oh they're a bit dysphagic but have a close look at the mouth and tongue because on occasions I've just seen unilateral tongue swelling and lip swelling and obviously you manage that according to your usual anaphylaxis protocols. I guess more recently and something that does need talking about and learning about now is the use of mechanical thrombectomy. Now, that is much more widespread in Europe and the rest of the world than in the UK. We've been much slower to develop a pathway for this across the country, but work is ongoing significantly now. Thrombectomy and mechanical thrombectomy is obviously hoiking blood clots out of big arteries that are causing strokes, but it does necessitate a very detailed pathway to be able to deliver this care. And a lot of stroke centres like the one I work in are spoke centres. We are identifying the patients, doing appropriate treatments here and then transferring to a hub or mechanical thrombectomy. I just thought I'd run through those patients that are eligible for mechanical thrombectomy and just the slight change in practice that that gives. So I think NICE and across the country, it's recognised now that we can use mechanical thrombectomy for both anterior and posterior circulation strokes. The first group of individuals who we've been delivering thrombectomy to are those who are presenting within six hours of symptom onset of anterior circulation stroke, severe enough to cause an NIHSS of greater than five and previously functionally pretty independent, so a modified ranking of less than three, so a modified ranking of two or below. 
we have to demonstrate that they have a large vessel occlusion of the anterior circulation. And the way we do that is obviously using CT angiography. So those patients that present within six hours with acute ischemic stroke with a large vessel occlusion of the proximal anterior circulation can be considered for mechanical thrombectomy. But you will also be delivering thrombolysis to those individuals as well. There are other groups that can be considered also, and we need to think about those group of patients that are wake-up strokes. And if you have the ability to image them with CT perfusion and to determine salvageable brain, then this group of patients can be considered for thrombectomy within 6 to 24 hours of symptom onset. Obviously, if they're presenting after sort of four and a half hours, you're not going to be thrombolizing those patients. Those individuals who present within 24 hours of a proximal posterior circulation occlusion, and we're talking about basilar or posterior cerebral artery occlusions, can also be considered for mechanical thrombectomy. So lots of stroke services across the country now are developing pathways to enable them to perform CT and CTA to develop pathways to send these patients to hub centres for mechanical thrombectomy. And there's a lot more to learn about that, but probably out with the scope of this podcast today. Thank you so much for the talk, Dr. Blake. I hope everyone found it useful for their stroke on goals and their exams. Watch out for our new episode next week.